There was a period in the mid 20 teens that I made money doing influencer projects. Every single time I did one, I felt like a sellout. The agencies never gave a shit about what they were promoting or the people they worked with. It was always a battle with the companies wanting the most corny milk toast content possible. Most of the time, the products I promoted I never used or believed in. Hunter Thompson wrote an amazing piece in Playboy about a French Olympic skier turned producer endorser that's about 40 years ahead of its time. It captures the vibe of product endorsements and social media influencers very well. With that said, my paid partnership work gave me the money to build my studio and set up a way to make money from that. I'm very thankful I had the opportunity to make money doing them, but for me, it really just didn't pencil out in the long run. Every time I did them, it made something that I should enjoy, making videos and taking photos, seem like some form of academic punishment. I stopped doing them in 2016. Welcome to Glorious Professionals, brought to you by GoRuck Media with old friend Foster Huntington. We first met at a GoRuck Challenge in Boston in 2011, right before he left his fashion job in New York and moved into a camper and drove over 100,000 miles around the West, surfing and camping. He popularized the van life movement and got really popular on Instagram with a million followers, became an influencer, so-called, as he came out with books and other projects. During the summer of 2014, Foster set up a home base in the Columbia River Gorge, where he built a really, really nice treehouse and then a media studio to pursue creative projects. What I'm interested in diving into today involves the virtues of a simpler life, how we define connectivity this day and age, and how to build a modern media business without living life on your phone. Foster, good to see you, man. Welcome to the show. Yeah, good to see you too. <laughs> it's been a little too long. I um, know. Before we dive into to some of the, the media stuff and, and all of that, I, I think it's it's almost impossible to understand you or, or anybody else for that matter without understanding how they grew up. So how'd you grow up with your parents and, and the, great, the great outdoors out West and, and your dog and your brother? And what was it like? I grew up in, I was born in Portland, Oregon. My parents moved here from Wisconsin because they'd both been to the Northwest and loved it and knew that they didn't want to live in Midwest and they my dad got a job applied for a job out here and they moved out to Portland in 1987 when my mom was pregnant with me and uh my dad was a stockbroker until I was three years old and he just kind of had a mid-30s crisis and decided that he didn't want to do that anymore so we moved out of Portland and moved 40 miles due east on the Columbia River Gorge in an area that's I would say you know pretty remote like the school the local school had eight kids per grade and it was uh like a bunch of it's a small logging community is really what it was so what was life like like what what were your chores as a kid what what, what did you do outside we had chickens and we lived on 25 acres that was really close to a national forest so i uh and i was really into primitive skills uh, my parents were kind of like Pretty, I would, you know, uh, pretty hippy dippy in terms of, uh, you know, like we couldn't have dirt bikes, we didn't have a TV, and my entertainment was just, you know, building creeks in the river with my brother, and I got really into bows and arrows and BB guns, and we had this rule where if I killed it, I could eat it. So I was like, went through a stage of like eating blue jays and robins and shit, just because 
I was, uh, you know, I, I used to like you, man. And Blue Jays are cool. <laughs> I know. I feel like such an asshole now. I see Blue Jays. I'm like, they're so cool. But, you know, when I was like eight, nine years old, I was like with a BB gun going. Uh, but you didn't know any better, you know, and my parents weren't going to tell me not to do it. So uh, my parents were super into backpacking. That's kind of how I got into you know, like, uh, rucking for back of lack of a better term. It's just like, our no, that that's a good term, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a good term. And, uh, you know, like for our vacations, we would go to the grand Canyon and hike down in, or we, we did that twice. We were really close to the Pacific crest trail. So I grew up doing a bunch of hiking. And when I became a little more autonomous, I got really into snowboarding and skateboarding. And that's kind of like what I did throughout high school. And, when I was 11 years old, my I got diagnosed with dyslexia. And at the time, neither my brother and I could really read. And I was in the fourth grade. My brother was in the second grade. And we were just at this r- rural school that, you know, where some incredibly low percentage of people actually ended up graduating from high school because it's just like a poor kind of rural community. And the schools weren't just weren't that good. And it was just, you know, like, oh, I couldn't read when I was in first grade. I couldn't read when I was in second grade. You know, it was like, oh, he'll learn. And then when I was in fourth grade, I got diagnosed with dyslexia that kind of really changed the uh, impetus of my education because I just literally couldn't read and couldn't spell. I took like a battery of tests that showed that my like vocabulary and cognitive acumen was high, but, you know, my spelling and short-term memory retention were literally 10th percentile which is like mentally handicapped level. So my brother and I started doing tutoring and we switched schools. And and in order for us to fix school, switch schools, we had to move back into the city. So I kind of grew up with this big dichotomy between living in a rural place and living in an urban place. So you needed extra educational help that was only in the city. Yeah, it was only in the city, you know, and for a while, my parents would drive an hour before school, we'd drive an hour into Portland to do this kind of tutoring. And then I would drive an hour back for school and I'd show up two hours late and we ended up just switching schools to a school in Portland. And we moved back into Portland and ended up graduating high school in 2006. And I just applied to a bunch of different colleges and got into one in Maine and just wanted a different change. You know, I wanted to see a new, a new area and just kind of like get away from what I know. So I went with having never visited Maine or really spent much time in New England, went to a college in Maine, just showed up in the fall. And I was just kind of like totally unprepared. Totally. I was academically prepared, but socially I was just like, holy shit, this is a whole new world to me. I'd never, you know, I'd never thrown a football you know, and I go to New England and everyone's like the Patriots, Tom Brady. You know, it's like, that was like a language that was so foreign to me. Hey, so wait, real quick, let's go back. Yeah. What were the challenges like? And and I, you know, fast forward, I, I met you long before I knew any of this. And I just yeah. saw you, you were very comfortable with the Ruckon. You're very comfortable in the mountains. You were very comfortable socially. You're very comfortable yeah. with a camera in your hands, but you had this struggle. You're not reading in fourth grade. And your parents have to sacrifice either driving time, you know, to do these things from this lifestyle that they had chosen and that that was kind of the goal. And and then you have to sort of migrate into the city and, you know, by the way, you need to start doing better in school. So there's work attached to that. Like what, what were the difficulties for you and and your brother and your parents? 
I mean, we the difficulties were that my teachers thought I was mentally handicapped because I was just so I I couldn't spell anything. Like I remember they did this thing, I think it was maybe second grade where they were like just basic spelling of words. And I remember I was like, I've always been into guns, but when I was a kid, I was like a gun and I spelled it J U N. And they're like, Oh no, like you can't even spell a three letter word. Like, and that was just like the tip of the iceberg in terms of like my ability to spell. And I did fine in like a bunch of the classes, but just when it came time to like read out loud or like write stuff, it was just a travesty. And even in middle school and high school, when we were like reading out loud, it was something or like if I'm reading out loud to my girlfriend or if I have to do any kind of reading out loud, I get very kind of like embarrassed or and I read just really slowly till this day. Just, you know, I'm sure some of it's it's like a stutter or something like that, where it's like you you foresee it as a problem, but it's not actually a problem, you know? So I had like a mental block there where I just read really slowly and that kind of created, I was always really embarrassed about it, you know, because it's this thing that's in modern society, if you are literate, that is impossible. Um, and I was borderline illiterate in fourth grade. My parents read to me a bunch, like that was the kind of their quick solution is, you know, like reading Mark Twain and reading kind of like all these books. So it's like, I remember my parents like read us the Iliad and stuff when I was in fourth grade. And I like was familiar with like, I knew what was going on, but I didn't like, I couldn't, I couldn't read like a Hardy Boys book or I couldn't like read any of these kind of like, I wasn't reading Harry Potter myself, you know, and that kind of dates me a little bit, but, uh, yeah, it's so crazy, Foster. This is Emily here. I'm listening to you, and things have changed in education so much. Um, I mean, I have kids at, that are school age, and now you can request to not have your kid have to read in in front of the class, or you don't. Yeah. They don't have to be subjected to spelling bees, you know, <laughs> and the, sort sort of these sort of these things that are not that important, right, anymore, because it's really that's not a good test of what you need to do to be like publicly feel ashamed in front of the class, you know? So it's, it's fascinating to hear that, I mean, your parents did a lot of the right things. They kept reading to you, you know, I mean, now what, what is the importance of spelling now? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's, it's cool because it's like, while you weren't worrying about those things, you were owning other skills that are as important or, or more. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, (laughs) you know, like that was, you got to have some kind of accountability. You no, know? but uh, if your kid has is diagnosed as dyslexia yeah. and they are not up to the level that they need to be and you know these you know you don't you're not able to send them to a special school or something you can do these things where they get these accommodations that are and, and I'm not saying like special snowflake sort of stuff. I'm saying yeah, to get yeah. them to the level they need to be without hurting, you know, them in other ways. But definitely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, some people might abuse it, but some people might need it. Right. Sort yeah, of thing. Definitely. And, 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 and the, the class might be bigger than just, you know, seven other kids. In the yeah, class. exactly. It could be a ton, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, just fast forwarding a little bit, like that, that was a hard process though. Right. I mean, yeah, it was, it was really tough. And it's one of those things where there's no like getting out of it. You know, it's like either you've, it's very much like a sink or swim situation, you know? And like, so when did it kind of click? I mean, like you say you were prepared when you moved to Maine to go to school. Yeah. At what point were you, you kind of like, okay, I can do this. I started like figuring out in high school, 
I went to a high school that was academically really rigorous and I just kind of had to like figure it out. It was very much sink or swim. And I remember when I was diagnosed with dyslexia, my parents started reading me all these statistics talking about how like, if you're dyslexic, you're a hundred times more likely to be a CEO, but you're also like 200 times more likely to be a felon or something like that. You know, like <laughs> there's like these gaps on the edge where it's like either you're one of these or you're one of those. And I was like, oh shit, like I need to, I'd so much rather be one of those than <laughs> locked up. Um, and not because they're, they're bad people, but it's just like, I definitely have this philosophy about the world where there's, there's some people that are not, and a lot of people are not suited to be living in the modern era, you know, like education's modern society is like, I think people succeed despite the structures of the confines of society, not because of them a lot of times, or at least for me, you know, I've definitely felt like if I would have was born 400 years ago, I would have been probably just as more, I mean, more psyched, you know, I would have figured I wouldn't have been on Instagram taking photos, but I would have done something else, you know? I, I don't think a lot of people can even imagine their lives without it though. Yeah. But I mean, you grew up and, you know, for you, what a, a TV was a, was a phone. It was the forbidden fruit of sorts. Yeah. And so, but you you had to do other stuff and that's, that's what a lot of parents are facing now is how much screen time and how long can I prevent my kids from doing these kinds of things? Yeah. And I think it's really one of the enormous benefits of growing up rurally. And that's just something that I like have seen with my friends. And one thing I definitely want to do when I have kids is live in the country because it's like, you are forced to entertain yourselves in ways that, you know, I was like building a dam in the backyard or like built digging a hole and building a fort or making a bow and arrow or, you know, like there's all these activities that I was just like, Hey, what if I do this? What if we, Oh, there's a Creek back here. What if I build a dam and that kind of, you know, kind of nurturing that attitude and scaling it up. Definitely the tree houses are kind of like an example of that mentality just but 20 years later, you know, imagination, right? Um, I mean, you have to develop it. And yet let's talk about what led you into New York city fashion (laughs) where you are not currently. No. And I know, uh, so when I was in college, I, uh, I didn't really fit in. I didn't really enjoy every, so many people were like, college is the best shit ever, man. Like soak it up for four years. After that, like it's downhill. And I had like the hundred percent opposite experience when I was there. I was like, fuck every spring semester. I'm like, I'm about to drop out. You know, like I can't, this is just not for me. There's just, a, I don't even, I don't know what I'm going to do, but this is not the vibe because I just like taking classes and just kind of, I've never really enjoyed the classroom. And because of that, I started looking for other things to uh, get excited about. And I borrowed a friend's camera on a total whim and just started taking photos and really loved it. What kind of camera? Uh, The first camera I borrowed was a Canon 5D. Actually, no, it was a, it was the Nikon equivalent of a 5D. So what it was like the first full frame digital SLR, but it was a Nikon. And I had never taken any art classes. I was always kind of like more of like, I was into snowboarding and being outside and doing shit like that. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to take a photography class or I'm going to do like, that wasn't my vibe at all. But I borrowed, actually it was on a road trip. We drove back from um, the East Coast to the Pacific Northwest and we stopped in the San De Los Cristos mountain range in uh, Colorado. And we were, I was like, 
bar by friend's camera and was taking photos. I was like, damn, this is so fun. Um, and then that fall, I like bought a camera and just started doing a photo blog. And this was in the fall of 2008, like right when the economy was just cratering and, uh, going to the college the way that I did. And like all the kids that I went to college with are either like were lawyers or investment bankers or like doctors or something like that. And then all of a sudden there's like, none of those jobs existed. So I was just like, well, I don't know whatever they're going to do. Like, it's not going to work for me. And there was just very low. It's one of those things like there wasn't like a lot of opportunities for. It's not like there's a lot of job opportunities. So I was just like, hey, I'm just going to give this is I'm having fun. And I just like started taking photos just for the shits and giggles. And I started a photo blog. And this was really early on in the era of so photo blogs. It was before Tumblr, before like. You know, I mean, like Twitter was around, but it was like very basic. It wasn't, it was pre-social media as we know it. And, you know, I just started reading other menswear-ish blogs like the Continuous Lean or, you know, Trad or A Trip Down South or One Trip Pass and just like seeing this world that was like so foreign to me. And um, I just kind of like took it kind of seriously and was just like, all right, I'm going to take photos every, every day when I'm not doing school, I'm going to go out. Like we were going surfing, we were going camping. We were like, just I'll start taking photos of that and posting it on on this photo blog and like writing about it. Is this a restless transplant or is this before that? Yeah. Yeah. This is a restless transplant and a designer from Ralph Lauren approached me or sent me a message being like, Hey man, your photo blog is super cool. I'm from Maine. Like I live in New York now and work at Ralph Lauren. I was like, Whoa, what the hell is that like? And he's like, it's actually pretty cool. Like it's totally different than what you think it would be. And he put me in touch with their men's design team and the way that Ralph Lauren does design. They have like a technical designers who are like, you know, making tech packs and working with factories and doing that. And then they have a conceptual design department where their people are just like working on design concepts for collections. And I got linked in with those folks and uh, they offered me an internship in New York. And I was like, well, that sounds pretty crazy. Like I never was, I wasn't a preppy kid. I wasn't into fashion. Like I didn't own a polo shirt, you know, but I was like, (laughs) I'll give it a go. And it seemed like, It was kind of like visually challenging to me in a way that was super cool. And the people that I worked with are not what you'd expect. It was like none of them went to design school. Most of them were like a couple. There's like two guys that went to architecture school that like felt scrubbed out. And then like, I mean, none of them graduated from college. Actually, one did. But like it wasn't like this kind of. Sellout, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sellout. It wasn't like this thing where, you know, they're like, oh, it's some fashion person. It was like, no, these people were like very, the only thing that like they had in common was they were all just super visual and very like observant to the point where it was just like, they could just like see someone and they'd like make up their whole life around them. Be like, oh, if this person, like they probably live here and they probably drive this car and they like, they could just like kind of riff off these visual things that, like for men's, because men's fashion is all about selling a lifestyle, you know? So it's all about like orchestrating this lifestyle around these activities and these products and then designing products that feel authentic in that story. So that's that's all we were doing. And and that's what I loved. I didn't really love fashion, but I just loved like hanging out with these group of people and like doing these visual stories. 
And I love, I did it for two years and they offered me a job after my internship, but I was, I was like, I, I'm going to go finish college and come back. And I came back and I did it for two years, but I just kind of was just like, this is not, I was just in my early twenties and had this kind of like dream job in a lot of ways. I was the youngest person to be on this design team ever. And just like, it was just like, you know, I, we, we worked with Ralph Lauren, the guy twice a week on stuff and I was working like 70 hours a week and it was cool, but I just, it really wasn't scratching the itch that I wanted to scratch just kind of growing up outdoors. And like, you know, it, when I looked at my life, I was like, I'm not going to, I just didn't view myself spending my twenties in an office making, picking sweater colors. That's not what I like had thought my life would be about, you know, and I kind of got dragged into it because it was just like, Hey, like I was getting paid money. I had this, like, I was really good at it for the first time. I would say in my life, I was ever like, except I wasn't saying I was, I was exceptional at it, but I was, it came really naturally to me where I could like instantly be like, Oh, pick some cool colors and pick some clothes that fit into this. I was like, boom, boom, boom. It was like second nature. Whereas like when I was in high school or college, even it's like, Oh, studying for a calculus test. Like, fuck no. You know, like I'd, I'd get a C minus, you know, like I was like a C plus person. And then all of a sudden I found something. I was like an A, A, A plus A. I was an A student at this, you know, or even better where it's just, I, it is like, it just came. And so that was kind of like really exciting for me having struggled with so much stuff, like having to be like, just just like pound dirt, trying to like figure out how to like write this essay or read this book or like study for a geology test. It was just like, all of a sudden I could just do it. And that was kind of really enticing. Did you learn a lot of skills in that two year period that, that you use today or did that just come on your own? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I learned, it's all about like selling an idea. You like come up with this idea and then you'd like figure out the best way to like, you know, show people it a visual idea where in a way that people can get excited about, you know, and I just spent, I could go to bookstores and just buy whatever photo books I wanted and just it's like, you know, do a bunch of image research. And it's like, all right, I could go, I'll go to every bookstore in New York and like, look at all their photo books and just like buy all these photo books and be like, mark them. And then we'd have like an assistant scan them and like, here's a bunch of cool photos. So I just like kind of revived or refined my visual eye just by looking at, you know, millions of photos all the time. And that was super helpful because it's like, and I was around all these really people with amazing eyes. So I just kind of just like through osmosis, like figured out what a good photo was and like, you know, or what, how to compose stuff or yeah, I was like reverse engineering photography almost. It's just like, all right, here's a really cool photo. Yeah, weren't you a, a judge for Nat Geo at some yeah. point? I saw a post yeah. that you had and and you said something that about looking at all these books and learning like what appealed to you and how that influenced yeah, yeah. you. Yeah, a couple of years ago I was a judge for for a Nat Geo travel photo of the year. But uh yeah, I mean I just kind of learned that way. And I but it wasn't really like itching the scratch that I had. I, I just I wasn't it wasn't it, you know, and I was, so it sounds like it was almost like an easy, hard decision, right? Yeah. Cause even though you found something that you were really good at, yeah, you're, you're in a city you don't really want to be in. You yeah. look out at your life and you say, this, this is not exactly where I want to be going, but there's always those trappings, right? A consistent yeah. paycheck, right? Yeah. I mean, people around you telling you that you're good at something. 
That that's yeah. another one. And, yeah, and you definitely. sort of add those two up and you say, am I actually willing to stop doing this to pursue, to, to pursue something that is more meaningful to me? And, and you actually yeah. said, yes, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to leave this and go live this other life. Yeah. And I mean, actually it wasn't that kind of cut and dry. I mean, I just early on was like, I, I just maybe six months into being there. I was just like, oh, I can't, this is not like the end game for me. I got to figure out something else. And, uh, you know, that's about the same time I go rock kind of, or maybe a couple months later, go rock came into my radar and I was like, this is really cool. And, you know, growing up, I always heard stories about my great grandfather who my middle name is named after, but he was, uh, in the OSS during the second world war and was in charge of schools at the OSS and was like, you know, he did had a crazy life. He grew up in Nepal and lost his lung in the first world war and, uh, was a biology professor and spent a bunch of time in the jungles in Panama. And it just like sounded like this thing that was larger than life to me. And I just, uh, around the, the time and the thing that ultimately like led me to go ruck was I was like can strongly considering joining the military because I just there was like a level of excitement that I just wasn't being like wasn't satiating in my life you know and I was like super into CrossFit and I remember I was just like saw go ruck and this was early on I think it was like the first video I saw the video of go ruck in New York and it had like that uh, classical song, you know, I was like, hold, this is fucking, I don't, whatever, like this seems badass. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll link to it, but yeah, it was, you know, yeah. the, the, the meet point and we're actually at the 10 year anniversary of that later this year, but yeah. the meet point was up at Columbus circle and I had them, yeah. there was a whole big class out there. That's the one I was at? Yeah, yeah. That's the one she was at. And, uh, it was, we had this joke cause you know, Em and I, it's, it's been kind of a funny, awesome thing that we've had. It was like, it's so cool. Even your ex-wife wants to do it with you. She was <laughs> my ex-wife when she did class 003, this one. Uh, no but there way. was like this check-in process and we had this big stack of bricks. And yeah. it, it took a while back then. The bags, the inventory, the event, the roster it took yeah. a while. And I'm like, hey guys, I'm sorry. This is going to take a little, it's going to take a little bit of time, but I promise you I'll have you in a, a dirty, nasty, muddy body of water in Central Park in under four minutes after we step off out of here. That's my promise yeah, to you, yeah. right? And everyone's like, huh? But, but yeah, yours, I, cause I dug up some old photos. Yours was April, 2011 in, in Boston. Yeah. And that's where we met briefly. And there was another cadre, Brian, who was there. Yeah. And I I'm, you wore, you wore five finger death punch shoes. You wore your Vibram five fingers. Yeah. So I just had read born to run and I was definitely hook, line and sinker. And the whole idea of running shoes were bad for the soul and uh, no pun intended. And I was like, doing CrossFit and thought that I was like, when the gal do this go recting and, and, uh, and five fingers and the five uh, finger death point punch. Yeah. Dude, so I, you, it didn't really bother me. I was fine. Um, yeah, you're the one it, it destroyed yeah. a lot of other lives. So if you're out there, I yeah. highly recommend you not do that. Yeah, I would. And in hindsight, I would not, I would definitely not do that, but it didn't really bother me that bad. I think, I don't know where I'd read about it, but I knew how much weight was going to be in the pack. And I'd like put that weight in my backpack and ran 21 miles one day. And I was like, I, in five fingers, I was like, I could do it. You know, I was beat the next day, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a death sentence. And then I remember showing up and everyone being like, good luck finishing with those dude. Like you got any other shoes? <laughs> I think that was me by the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it was, it was cause I'd put a bunch of stuff out. Some people had shown up and they, they just got massacred with those, those shoes yeah. on. So it was kind of like, and we traded a couple notes prior cause yeah. M dub over at continuous lean was yeah. it kind of put, us, put us together and yeah. that's cool. Then we went out and you, you did that successfully. Good job, by the way. Yeah. So you're very early, early there. We met out at the ascent as well, climbed some mountains mm -hmm. together out there. You took a really prized picture of mine with me and Java at the top of one of the 14ers. Yeah. I, I got one of you up there as well. And there's some of you building Dakota fire holes and Mike, Mike V, the skateboarder was there, if you remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this was right around the time you were, you were going to go live out of your van for, how long did you end up living out of your van? Three years. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. And just to like the backtrack before, like around the time of the initial go ruck, I think that was in April or May. Was it April, April May? 2011. Yeah. It was just before bin Laden got shot. It, it's kind of like yeah. the, the frame of reference. You're. You were the uh, yeah. first class that weekend and the last class that weekend. Because uh, it was is, on a Sunday, right? Yeah. He got shot. The in, So I found out about it would have been, yeah, like late Saturday, I think. It was May 2nd. Yeah. But yeah, that, that always ties me to that that Boston class. Yeah. So at the, about that time, I was just, I had realized at that point that I was like, hey, I probably, I want to do something drastic with my life in order to like get me, I need to do something drastic. Like I'm going to. I'm, I was like looking and joining the military. I was like, I either I'm going to do something like that or I'm going to like really try to make it as make it go as a photographer because I'm not sitting in my office doing all this was like, like hearing everyone talk about these things that to me just held no, the, the level of seriousness that people approached the issues they were talking about. I just couldn't get my mind around, you know, I could like, get excited about parts of the job, but I just couldn't like, I couldn't do that for 20 years, you know, and everyone I worked with was older than me by like 10 years. So I was just like, there's no way I could kind of continue this. So I had the idea to just start this photo project, documenting the things that people would take if their house was burning. And I'm pretty sure I asked you about it. I'm sure there's one. Somewhere. Yeah. I took a picture of Java yeah. and it's got yeah, exactly. the American flag and yeah, and in Java's the, the the prayer rug that Java got from a friend of Emily's from Afghanistan. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I just started asking people that I knew that, and I uh, I started this Tumblr, and this was kind of early on in the days of Tumblr. And within the first week of launching it, it was in the New York Times, and I was getting interviewed by NPR about it, and it just kind of like exploded. People were submitting from all over the world. It was pretty wild just kind of like watching it all happen and then like based on like having a blog at that point and then all of a sudden like this blog was getting like 200 times what my photo blog was getting like in the first week i was like wow like uh, this will probably change my life forever in some you know like it will set me on a different path so foster how does this happen like it, did it just go viral was there was, yeah. was there like old press connections i mean how no it literally i mean i had like some friends like i think michael williams posted a link to it i posted on all my photo blogs but it's one of those things with the internet where there is I've had like two things really go viral in this, in my life. And this was one of them where it was just like, it just, it just spread beyond, you couldn't really, it just spread like the Rona, you know, it just like <laughs> proliferated into the world. And you just, you know, I, I got it into an airport and the next thing you know, it's everywhere in the world. Um, and it's, and it's funny cause like people think there's like this method, to the madness of getting people to see a lot of their stuff. And I'm sure there is, you know, like, 
you can like check all these boxes and get these people. But sometimes there's just something that just, you know, some things will just like get caught by the wind and really go. And this was one of those instances, you know, right place, right time, kind of right structure. And I got approached by HarperCollins to turn it into a photo book. And I remember like kind of talking to the editor and them like throwing out an offer for the advance that was more than I was making in a year at my job. And I was like, all right, I'm done. Like this is this is curtains on this. And I uh took the advance and bought a van. And I remember I had like signed up for another go ruck. And I was like, hey man, I'm leaving. I'm not gonna be around for this. And you're like, come to Colorado. I like told you what I was gonna do. And that was like actually one of the first trips I did was, you know, I left my job and flew back to Portland and did a bunch of work on my van, like getting it set up. And then the first trip I did was I drove down to Colorado with my brother. We took like two weeks getting there and did a bunch of backpack or we did a couple nights of backpacking and fished and just hung out. And then we did the ascent, which was a, a, a super good time. And that, so to me, like when I think that whole period of life of 2011 was one of the, the best times of my life for sure. And also one of the most transformative because social media was at this stage where it, people were just kind of doing it. It was like companies weren't using it as this marketing tool yet. The companies themselves, like Facebook hasn't, hadn't, hadn't weaponized it yet. You know, Instagram was a small, was just a startup from these like idealistic people. Cause I think like at the start of every, when anyone starts a tech company, I think at some point, there's a lot of altruism involved in like, they think they're going to change the world for the better, you know? And then at some point they're like, oh, we need to make money. And then they're like, all right, well, we need to make money. Well, how can we make money? Well, we can get people addicted to their cell phones. So let's like organize the algorithms to get people, turn them into addicts, you know? But at that time in 2011, it was this thing that, you know, I had been using Instagram. I had, you know, a couple hundred followers. And I remember talking to one of my friends when I left New York. I was like, you know, maybe someday I can have like a thousand followers on Instagram. I was like, I think I could maybe swing that. And, uh, you know, I was just like, I had this idea of being like, all right, well, I'm going to work on this photo book for six months until my manuscripts do. And then I'm just going to like, see what happens. Worst comes to worst. Like maybe I'll get another job. Maybe who knows? I'll put, I'm going to do a little reset or I'm going to do a little, you know, uh, a gap year foster. Let's yeah, put it in, in, you know, professional Modern. style terms. Yeah. <laughs> a gap year. Yeah. At that at that time, Instagram was just pictures. You couldn't even write it a caption or anything. Yeah. On it. yeah. So what was in your head if you say, okay, I've got a website that's getting some pretty good hits. I've got an advance from a publishing house to do an art book. I've got, you know, this van I'm going to go live in for a while. I mean, I assumed without so much as thinking, like you brought a camera along mm -hmm. and you're like, well, I can continue the photo blog. Like what was the kind of business model at all in your head? Or was there one? There wasn't one really. I was like, Hey, I got enough money. I got like, to me, it was a massive sum of money, but it, it was like, I think like 25 grand, you know, it's like, I'm like, I can live for a year off this. I'm rich. You know, um, I got a van, <laughs> I got a car, I got some surfboards. I got like, you know, I'm 23, like, let's go. And I was just like, I'm, I didn't really have that much of a, of a plan. I was like, I'm just going to go take photos that 
I want to take and do things that are really fun that I want to do that I don't see people doing, you know, like I want to go backpacking and I want to go to Mexico and surf. And I want to like, you know, kind of do these things that people weren't really documenting. Um, there was like very siloed types of photography at the point where there's like, there's like Nat Geo travel photos. And then there was like street photography, but there wasn't like this enormous adventure style photography thing that is a thing now that just didn't exist. You know, it wasn't like, there's like product photography from the North Face and Patagonia and stuff, but there wasn't like candid photography of people doing cool stuff outside. It wasn't like, I mean, it wasn't like this enormous thing. And I was just like, I'm going to go put my, I'm going to go get in that swimming pool or I'm going to like go in there and see what I can do. So that like my only real strategy and business model is just like, Hey, I don't see anyone doing this. And I think it'd be super cool. So I'm going to try it. I got enough money to live for a year. Like, let's see what hat was roll the dice. So how much was this about you doing it for you? And how much did you say, I, I need to kind of share this a little bit. This, that might go somewhere. I mean, the way I assessed it was just like, I just want to go do stuff that I personally want to do, you know? And if people, and if I take photos of it, that'll be awesome. It wasn't at this thing where there wasn't, I wasn't like following a playbook, you know, it was just like, I'm in oh, going to Baja for a month and going surfing. That sounds and like hanging out with my friends and like, you know, traveling around in my van in Baja, like eating shitty tacos and surfing all day and like living, like not showering for a month and living out of this car. Like that's amazing. Like I want to go, I'll take some photos, you know, I want to, I want to like make this happen, you know? And that's something I just always wanted to do. And I remember that one of the first people I talked to when I decided to leave, I was taking photos for the Burning House book, was this guy named Steve Rodella, who's now a, a big ass deal. But back then he was he has this show on Netflix called The Meat Eater and is like a big podcast. But at the time he was just he had written this one book that my publisher had published and they're like, Oh, you'd like Steve, this guy, Steve. And he lived in New York at this time. And he's like this big hunter and fisher and he lived in New York. And I remember going over to his apartment to take a photograph for the book. And I had like bear and elk and he had a 300 wind mag on his wall that he used like going elk hunting. I'm like, what? You have a rifle in New York? In New York and city? In New York city. Don't call yeah. the cops. And Brooke, it was legal. He had like done all the paperwork to get it. And I remember he was one of the people who I was like, dude, what do you think I should do? I bought this van. He's like, you should definitely go to Mexico, go to Baja. And I was like, all right, I'm going there, you know? So I just like, it just seemed like uh, a bunch of fun places like that to, that I wanted to go and what I wanted to see. And that kind of my favorite photos and the, my favorite things I've done have all been like some activity that I selflessly just, I was like, I want to go do this. I want to build a tree house. I'll take some photos of it. I think people might like it, you know, or I want to go live in a van. It sounds awesome. I'll take photos of it. And at the time, like van life wasn't a thing. There wasn't, I remember like I found a YouTube video of some guy talking about living in his van, but it was like, you know, it had like a thousand views and it was just like, you know, it wasn't like a, a thing. And like when I started the van life hashtag, it had 40 photos and it was photos of the van shoes. It wasn't like, this thing without the s which means they had misspelled it 
right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you, cause you were chatting with our, our mutual friend, uh, Michael Williams at ACL. And you said, mm -hmm. my time on the road was one of the best times of my life. I learned a tremendous amount about what makes me happy and what I care about. I learned that cities are not for me and that I wanted to live in the woods. I wanted to be close to my family. I read over a hundred books, catching up on things I should have read during high school and college, but didn't. I read fictional classics as well as nonfiction books that interested me. I honestly spent very few nights in hotels. To this day, I'd rather stay in my van than in a hotel. Yeah, definitely. Like, that is just some modern day Huck Finn stuff to me, man. I mean, and yeah. I, I think the lesson out there is one that I can just relate to. I had to break the mold a little bit and go travel around Europe at a time when I should be, you know, working for the man, how not to start a backpack company. Right. Or, or I had to go yeah. do these things and people would just call me crazy. And I, you know, I just, there was a, there was a drummer inside my head and it was beaten and it was like, I, I just, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I would rather go do something that's me and feel really good about it than just follow the playbook that's just out there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember at the time you had just traveled around America for a year and you're explorer. It's what your new book's all about. But I remember thinking that was awesome. It just the road beckoned, you know, adventure beckoned. Come hell or high water, I was gonna I was gonna get involved somehow, you know. The, um, the funny thing was is we actually talked about it out in Colorado because I had just come off the road essentially. I was still driving a yeah. little bit out west to go to some events and stuff, but summer of 2010 is when I'd gone and drove everywhere. And I was yeah. like, man, I, I need a little time off the road. And I didn't do it right. You know, going, going and living somewhere, even if all your only shower is the ocean for a month is, is great doing yeah. you know, kind of fly by drive through, you know, to, to, I mean, I had it in my head that I was going to go to all 48 States and come hell or high water. I, I did like, that was the goal at the beginning of that summer. And nothing was going to stop me because that was mission success to me at that time. And we, we chatted out in Colorado and I was like, man, I, I'm kind of cool with not traveling so much. And, and I go, you might not get there immediately. And you're like, no, man, I just, I want to do this. I want to just keep going. I'm like, the day will come. Trust me. The day will come. Yeah. You will get sick of living in the band. doesn't mean you have to quit on life, man. Doesn't mean no. you have to quit on life, but you will get, you will want some type of home base. And so you, you built your own home base. Tell us about it. Yeah. So a year into living in the road van, making no money, I was approaching dead broke and my van had issues. And I was like, fuck, what am I going to do to make cash? And this guy that I knew who I had taken some photos for when he worked at Urban Outfitters had since left and moved to Ventura, California and was creative director at Patagonia. And at the time, this was in like May of 2012. And Patagonia had like zilch social media presence. They had a blog called um, The Cleanest Line, but they didn't have an Instagram. They weren't on Tumblr. They weren't on like Snapchat wasn't a thing. They weren't like this really visual brand wasn't communicating visually online. And I was like, hey man, like why doesn't Patagonia have Instagram? And he's like, that's a really good question. Do you want to like give it a shot? So I like came on and he'd been like following me on Instagram and was super psyched on the van and everything. And just kind of gave me the keys to the social. He pretty much just on my first day just gave me the login info for their social media accounts. And I was just like, I'm going to focus on Instagram and I'm going to focus on creating content that I think is really cool 
and help facilitating content that's really cool. Wait, so you were Patagonia's Instagram account? For two years, yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> yeah. So you, you took it from zero to the, the, the two years. 350. Yeah, zero to 350,000. It was one of those things where it wasn't like, it was so easy because the brand had so much visual stuff and there was like so much, they were doing cool trips, you know, like, oh, we're going to go on a surf trip to Russia, to Kamchatka. I was like, yeah, I'll go on that and take some photos and like work with the photographer and the pro surfers to like make a bunch of cool content, like flying around some old Russian helicopters, like around volcanoes and surfing close to grizzly bears. Sign me up. So it wasn't rocket science, you know, it's just, I had a really good idea in my head of what I thought the brand was visually in terms of like this, like kind of effortless, cool outdoor thing. And for lack, cool, for lack of a better word, but it's just like this kind of grungy and it was really informed by my year living in a van at that time. I was still living in my van, but it was informed by just like these people that I met who are like these diehard surfers or rock climbers. And I was like, that's what I ultimately think the brand should be. You know, it shouldn't be this, like the wealthy fly fisher in like Idaho, you know, it should be like the cool rock climber. Who's like, I don't give a shit about anything else, but rock climbing. And I buy Patagonia because it's the best stuff. So I just, you know, I reported directly to, to Dimitri, who is the creative director. And I, they just kind of like, yeah, you want to go like, go for it. So so I just did that for uh, a year and a half. And during that time, Instagram became like a big thing. You know, Facebook bought it for a billion dollars and people within the company were like, whoa, this is so cool. And then slowly like this thing where I can just kind of do whatever I wanted because no one thought it was important had since become like one of their primary channels of marketing. So what was like left to my discretion and just kind of like what was once the Wild West became like a suburb of, you know, Salt Lake City or something like that, where it's <laughs> like, you know, it was very different from when I first got there. And I didn't ultimately want to be a corporate. I mean, Salt Lake City is a beautiful town, right? But, yeah, but you know, that's a perfect yeah. analogy. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I concur. You know, you know, it's funny you said that about the fly fishermen because Hunter S. Thompson had the same like thoughts about covering fishing as a sport. He thought it was boring. He, yeah. wanted, he wanted something with a little more octane to it. Yeah. That book, The Great Shark Hunt. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Salt Lake City is that pretty anymore, but I imagine when they first showed up, it was amazing. But it was like a similar thing where I didn't want to, like, that wasn't my deal. I thought the brand was cool. I thought I worked with some amazing people, but I didn't want to become a marketing person. For me, it was just like, hey, here's like this thing that I love doing. I want to be doing this anyways. So during that time, that when I was doing, I was saving money when I was doing the work for Patagonia and I started doing some more freelance photo work. I saved up some money and I was like, well, in that point, I reached that point that you discussed where I was like, I was, I wanted a home base, you know, I wanted to like set up a life and get ready for whatever was next. And I'd always wanted a tree house and one of my closest friends who I went to college with had moved, just moved to San Francisco and was living in a sailboat in the Emeryville Marina and, that he bought for a thousand bucks. He was paying $200 a month for a slip fee. And he, we were just like, all my friends were just like totally grungy. I mean, he, it, we were just like living life super cheap. And that was like that time in my life that I got to the point where I was like, I want to, I want to have my own place. You know, I was tired of sleeping in friends' driveways 
you know, I, it just, when you're traveling all the time, I was taking a bunch of photos and I had taken tons of photos, but I wasn't, I wanted to get into some more kind of elaborate projects. So I decided I want to set up a home base. People always ask me like, how do you decide to make a treehouse? What made you want it? And I, I literally just was like, I'll, I guess I'll build a treehouse. It wasn't this thing, you know, I wanted one as a kid. It wasn't like this big, um, belabored. You didn't have like a staff of, of pollsters and, and people telling you what you should do to, to increase your followers on social media no, or something. I was just like, <laughs> man, building a giant treehouse sounds amazing. Like let's go and you know, let's do it. So I talked to my friend Tucker and he came up and we started like designing it. And then, you know, living on the road, traveling, I'd met a bunch of people surfing and Outside of the careers that most people you're like supposed to have, there's a bunch of people who are just like carpenters who make like good hourly wages, but it it's like they do that so that they can like go snowboarding in British Columbia or like, you know, go surfing or they're really into fishing or whatever. Like there's a bunch of people that have these very practical skills that are a lot of hard physical work that... I met just kind of, you know, like firefighters that wildland, I know a bunch of people that are wildland firefighters because it's like they work for three months and then it's like, all right, I can do this. So I met kind of a bunch of people like that who worked in carpentry or made skateboard bowls. And I was just like, hey, let's bake something on this property. I'd saved up this money, like, let's go. And so where's your, where's your sort of, you know, business quote, quote, life at, at that time? So at that time, I had done a photo book, The Burning House. I had been doing this social media marketing or consulting rather. I was doing work for uh, Patagonia and for Condé Nast, kind of advising them on a similar thing, being like Condé Nast Traveler, which is their travel magazine like i was at the t- i was making pretty good money for you know because at the time social all of a sudden social media was this thing everyone's like we got to get on social media it's like all right well who we're gonna have to do it it's like we might as well have these people that know what they're doing do it you know so i was consulting for patagonia and for conde nast and then i was doing freelance photography stuff um for a few companies and just kind of making money as a photographer or a creative and I very much kind of bought off on the idea that you want to make be making stuff that other people aren't making. There's some oftentimes there's a reason that other people aren't making it, but if you can make really compelling content that other people aren't making, you know, it's it's going to work out. So so when did you start, you know, so I haven't told you this, but we we would go out in in a process that I've I never enjoyed and and still don't. And we would go to, you know, marketing people who are outside of our little ecosystem and they would send you this pitch and they'd give you this list of names and all these people that they had in their, you know, back pocket, so to say, and this person, and they'd list out all their metrics. And I mean, you, you know, this story, right? Yeah. And occasionally your, your name would pop up on that. And I'm like, oh, cool. You're, you're going to get Foster to take pictures for us and like what, <laughs> post them all over his shit. And, and I'm kind of like, it'd probably be easier if I just called Foster, but I kind of felt bad about the whole process. I really didn't want to call you yeah, and say, Hey, go take a picture of this and go put it on your whatever. And yeah. I, and I knew, I knew deep down that you didn't feel good about it either. Yeah. So up in, before I started doing the tree houses, I would say from when when I first really became aware that influencer stuff was a very lucrative thing, 
um, or could be lucrative or was even a business was in like probably late 2014. I just kind of like fall. I just knew, saw some people that I follow on Instagram that started posting like stuff for Apple. And I was like, seems pretty sweet. So I, you know, reached out to them, but I, uh, hold on one second. I got to let my dog out. Okay. Foster, I want to, I want to break. What kind of dog is Juma? Gemma is Gemma. a Cocker Spaniel. Gemma is a Cocker Spaniel. Okay. So, cause you know, if somebody's listening to this, they kind of don't know what kind of, I mean, we'll show them some pictures and they'll probably look at your stuff and be like, oh, this is really yeah. cool. But to me, the, the time that I knew that you had really something that I really responded to you, your, your dog passed away. You posted a picture of your dog. You had dug a hole with your brother in the backyard, I think, mm -hmm. and you'd buried your dog. And this is a time when Java was around and Java was basically everything to, to me in my life at that time. Yeah. And so this was, this was from a, a note that you sent to me because we traded a couple notes. It was after these sent and stuff. It says, I grew up in the area where there weren't a lot of kids my age. So I spent a lot of time with my brother and our dog. He helped us build forts and was a constant companion. He was a big dog, around 100 pounds, and my brother and I would ride around on his back. I'm just glad that my brother and I both happened to be in the area when he had his stroke. More so than graduating from college, breaking up with my first serious girlfriend, burying him marked an end to an era. On the day we put him down, I could easily pick him up from my van and put him in that hole that my brother and I dug. Life's all about good things and bad things. I took that photo and decided to post about it because life is gritty. Those things need to be remembered. I look forward to getting a new dog, but need some time. Yeah, man. I remember that it gives me chills. It was about this time nine years ago. Yeah. I love dogs. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, we're, we're connecting a, a lot of, a lot of dots here, if you will, but you know, yeah. you, you happen to get sort of found to, to get a job at, Polo in, in New York City because you started a blog, right? A photo blog yeah. at, at the right time. And that's cool. You obviously had yeah. an eye for it. You had a photo blog and you kind of got discovered of sorts, but then you had to show up and you did the job really well. And you, you made a lot of contacts. You realized it wasn't for you, but you, you took what was good about it that you really enjoyed. You know, the, the visual elements, the life outdoors that you were creating this visual aspirational brand for Polo and you wanted to be living that, that yeah. way of life. And so you did. And, and yet you, you spent more than two or three months at a place just interning, which people, I think a lot of youth, they'll, they'll take their first job and they'll say, oh, this just isn't for me. And they'll stay there for two months or three months. That, that's, it's just never enough time. You've, whatever you yeah. do, you have to pay your dues a little bit. Yeah, definitely. You stayed in New York long enough to make these contacts. And these contacts would end up because you were always just kind of you. Ever since I've known you, you've just been kind of you. You're a little different, man. You beat to your own drummer. You just decide to do something and you just kind of go do it. And, and sometimes it's go live in a van. Sometimes it's build a treat house. Sometimes it's make a movie. Sometimes it's go on a pig hunt in Texas. Sometimes it's build a media studio. Little stuff and big stuff. You're just kind of following what you feel like you should be doing with your life to, to, to get to some type of higher, higher place, just cram as much life as you can in, into a life. And, and yet, you know, it is these kinds of connections that you've made that have, have made it sort of viable, like being really good at it, but you're also getting 
you're just good with people and you stay in touch with people, obviously, and that, that opens a lot of doors and has opened a lot of doors. And then you find yourself and it's time to build a treehouse, and you've got some oomph behind it, some coverage, and you've got these other various projects that are, are kind of all going on at the same time. It sounds like a pretty fun life, but it's not just an accident. Yeah. I mean, there's some people really need security. That's what they need in their life. They want to secure how, like they want to have a job that pays their mortgage. They want to have a car payment. They want to do safe things. And that has never, almost like to a fault, never been something I really seeked out, you know? And I've always just kind of been a bit of a contrarian where I was thinking if like, there's a, if everyone's doing this thing, there's probably a way to do it another way that will work out, you know? And instead of trying to do something that's very well defined, I'd rather try to do my own thing. And that doing your own thing is not easy. You know, it's like in my life, I've, I haven't gone broke, but I've had like $50 to my name, you know, like, I don't know, maybe like five times, four times in the last 10 years, you know, 50 bucks is pretty broke, man. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I've, yeah, it could be a lot worse. You could be a shitload in debt, you know, but I've been like, you got to believe I've believed in myself, you know, and been very stubborn and followed like my sense of smell to be like, I think this is going to work. And it like, especially with like the stop motion studio, like when I started doing the stop motion studio, I had this idea that, Hey, everyone's doing CGI and I don't want to be a traveling photographer traveling for my entire life because your whole source of income is only linked to how much you can travel. And at some point I'm going to want to have a kid and a wife and I want to have a family and I don't want to be gone 300 days a year. So I probably will need to figure out a way to make money and do things that I want to do that doesn't involve traveling around. So because like after I finished the treehouse, I had this idea to buy an old sail- sailboat and totally retrofit it, rebuild it and sail around, you know, a good portion of the world with a bunch of friends. And I was like, this would be amazing. Sail life, a new hashtag by Sail Foster life. Huntington. Yeah. And then I started thinking about it and I uh, realized that I was, if I did that, I would be kind of walking down this path where the only way I could make money was by kind of continuing to try to like one up myself and do these traveling things where it's like, well, you lived in a van, then you built a tree house and then you built a sailboat. And then like, what's next? You know, like fly around in the blimp, you know, like I didn't want to like kind of David blame myself. So I had the idea of like, well, what if I started trying to focus on things that weren't necessarily real? Or if I started making films or making shorts or like doing things where I could kind of generate a world or build a world or do something that visually very different or something that resembled reality that clearly wasn't. Because at the time with media online, Instagram being an influencer was so prevalent and everyone was doing these like clearly things that no one in their right mind would do as real, but they're trying to like sell it off as real. You know, like the obvious example is like the tent on like some, spire you know it's like no one would fucking sleep there in a trillion years you know or like kind of the the girls topless in the back of a van with the sunset in the background it's like that's not real this is never real and to me 
It's just like the emperor had no clothes. Like the cool thing about social media is it's a window into a world. Who's to say that that window has to be real, you know? And it's clearly isn't real because none of this shit is actually happening. It's all just an act. So I had the idea of to start doing my studio as a way to be able to just make things that I wanted to make, you know, like a rabbit talking or stop motion skateboarding piece or this this sci-fi film I'm developing. And it was a big gamble. You know, I took pretty much all the money I had. And I kind of saw the writing on the wall being like, hey, with social media, the Instagram or this influencer thing is going to be dead because Facebook owns this, Google owns this. Right now, influencers are making money because these influencers give access to a brand to an audience. Facebook is not going to like that in the long run because Facebook ultimately wants to control that access. So I was like, this is going to be, this is like going the way of the dodo. This is not going to be around. So I was like, I don't, and I don't want to have my whole world set up to rely on these two social media companies, Google or Facebook, you know, and as like an influencer, your whole life revolves around like where some people are typing in some algorithms on how content's, you know, delivered to people. And I just did not want that to be my reality. So I was like, well, I'm going to build something where I can, I'm less tied into that process. I can make stuff that I know has value because no one else is doing it, which is very short-sighted, but it ended up working out. But in terms of, I wanted to be able to make my own content that no one else could make from a technical perspective, or very few people could make, but then also would allow me to tell stories that weren't necessarily real under where there is no pretense that ever was real. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, I get it. It's like, you know, you can't top yourself in reality and you're growing up and it's like, you still want to do it on your terms. Yeah. And, and I think that's, it's cool. So what's the kind of updated business model, if you will. So for, and I was struggling, that's what I was saying. Like I was struggling for years because, you know, as a director or photographer, these companies want people to make stuff for them. And like a normal way a director or a filmmaker or a photographer makes money is by like bidding jobs at like said company. It's like, I don't want to have to bid jobs because that's just like a race to the bottom. You know, I want to be able to do things that very few people can do. And if they don't want that, that's totally fine. But if they do want that, like I want to be able to control the terms more. And uh, for years, you know, I was just out there in my fishing boat being like, I'm not coming in, you know, and I would like some people would be like, well, let's come in a little bit. And I was like, all right. And then I would just it wouldn't work out. So like I didn't get any commercial work. And at that point, I had stopped doing influencer work because I was like this. I every time I did, I'd be like, I was just I felt like, you know, I was selling some cure all. Like what was the worst? What was rock bottom for you in that world? The worst thing I did or the worst thing that I like said no to? Yeah. I would say like some of the, like I did some, like, I mean, I remember I took some photos for Samsung on like, I took these on my Samsung phone and I like definitely took them on my Samsung, but like I never used Android in my life, you know? And they gave me a bunch of money to say I used a Samsung for six months. And it's just like, like, I mean, I, the thing takes nice photos, but I didn't do it. Like, you know, Hewlett Packard, I did a couple of things where I was like, yeah, I use Hewlett Packard to come up with ideas because they have this hybrid laptop iPad thing, you know, and it's just like, oh, man, I just I felt like, you know, that scene in Wayne's world where they're like, 
Wayne has the Pepsi hat on and they're like, I always eat Doritos, you know, or whatever. Yep. And yep. Uh, I think that totally can work for some people. And I'm not like, I, it's easy to be like the anti-influencer who talks shit about this stuff. And it's like, hey, man, I don't care how people do all sorts of crazy shit to make money. I'm not, who am I to judge what's good and not good? All I can tell you is what makes me feel good. And doing that didn't make me feel good. And I guarantee you, you know, like doing the stuff I do now, a lot of people would rather be like, hey, I just do this, you know? Um, I'm not trying to say one's better than the other. But for me, I was just like, I couldn't like look myself in the mirror and be like, because I think as a creative person, you're either selling your own shit or you're helping someone sell their shit, you know? And that's ultimately how it goes. So what's next? So when you, you've got this studio, you've poured, you in, invested a lot into it. Yeah. And what are you most passionate about? You got a documentary coming out. You got a book coming out. New photo book coming right? out. Um, yeah. I'm uh, working on, I'm, we shot a proof of concept for a sci-fi film that I'll send you offline that you can check out. But I just want to, you know, I kind of, I want to just continue to do stuff that keeps me excited, that lets me capture some of that excitement of the inner eight or nine year old, you know, like when I'm working on these films and seeing them stop motion films and seeing them come together, it's super exciting. You know, when I'm working on that documentary, I'm like, this is, this is like telling a truth or telling something like one of the things about the documentary that I'm working on called puke. It's about this person that collects barn owl pellets to make money and his way of kind of like navigating the world. And to me, it feels like a return to those early days of blogging where I was like writing stuff like that piece about my dog dying or taking photos of things. It's just, I'm just doing it just for the sake of doing it. I don't care if a focus group would never, never tell me in a million years to make a documentary about people that collect owl vomit, but I thought it was awesome and I just want to do it, you know? And if it works out, that's great. If not, like I had a really fun time doing it, you know? And that's like kind of continuing to take those gambles and really believe in myself and just kind of like make stuff that people can engage in you know, offline in a way, I think that, you know, it might not happen immediately, but I think there is definitely going to be a big backlash against the social media companies. I don't, you know, not to sound like a Luddite, but I just think that they're kind of stranglehold on information and the way they prioritize that information is terrible for people's mental health. And I think can really kind of exacerbate and make people more extreme one way or another, you know? And I think like at some point people will come hip to that and start kind of demanding some accountability. And I think from like, you know, a marketing perspective, it's just like, I would never want to have my whole way of marketing a business kind of hinge on the whims of some companies, you know? what they deem is in the realm of politically kind of acceptable. Because if you look at it historically, companies do not give a shit about anything other than making money. And anyone who tells you differently is in my mind delusional. I mean, I definitely think there's, you know, like your company has a commitment to 
a culture that it emerged out of. And that's truly authentic. That's like a real thing. But in terms of like a giant publicly traded company caring about anything other than making as much money as possible, no fucking way, you know? And that's like one of my, the idea of like, do no evil, like these companies, you know, like Apple supporting Black Lives Matter, yet while making their making their components in these factories in China that are made in literally like Holocaust style, you know, concentration caps for Muslim minorities in Western China. I mean, it's just like, you know, and I think that like at some point people are going to realize that social media is it's not this utopian waste place it once was. It's kind of transformed into this corporate dystopia and we might not realize it yet and i kind of it's funny like i talked about this at length with michael williams but he's like dude i can't go here in the interview like (laughs) it's too it's too real but i do think that you know and you can do whatever you want with it but i do think that at some point there's going to be you know some form of backlash against it and that's why you see the rise of things like podcasts you know well i'll take it another angle and just say what it's selling is this kind of idea of connectivity based on the this idea of, of a community, right? Yeah. This online community. Now, I'm not talking anything about corporations or anything like that. Like this will connect you with all of your people. Yeah. But the, the thing that this ignores is human nature. We yeah. grew up as hunter-gatherers in small packs of, of people outside in the wilderness. Yeah. And what now, you, you know, you fast forward not that long and you've got this idea for a quote community. Well, community without an online, without a, a real world component to me is a forum. Yeah. And, and so you need this real life thing and where that evolves with Elon Musk putting chips in people's brains and where it evolves with, with how we combine social media or forums versus what we do in the real world. I mean, I think the foundational side of all of this is that we are people and we need to be part of a, a a, a real community, a family, a community, a tribe in the real world. And we need to live in the real world. And yeah, I, I don't know if this becomes an anti-corporation thing or just a backlash thing, but it's, it's definitely going to happen. Yeah. And I, uh, and I think that's one of the things that was so interesting about go Ruck is it's, and what you did so well is you created this experience off offline where people, it wasn't just products you were selling, you were creating something that people wanted to at the end of the day, be a part of and interact with. And that's what makes it really special. And that's something that like, you know, the social media agencies that came to you being like, we can get someone to like, use your toothpaste. It's like, that's a problem you never have to worry about, you know? And I think that, I think that social media has done some amazing things. And I've, I can owe a ton of, pretty much all opportunities in my life have some point like it's been facilitated by some social media platform. Go Ruck as well. I mean, we organized people to come meet up in the real world. Yeah. To me, that's, that's what's great about it. Yeah. I definitely think that there is a lot of problems with it in terms of you have these two companies that control this insane amount of people's lives in a way that is really ripe for manipulation and you know, I think like kind of in any way. And also you have them deciding what is good discourse and what's not good discourse. And I think that, you know, historically, I'd rather have a Supreme Court or a government entity decide what's good for people to talk about than a corporation, 
No, you might. It uh, depends on the government, maybe. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, depending. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Depending on the government. Uh, I was thinking. I th- first of all, I think you're right. I actually think there's already cracks in the social media yeah. structure, and we're we're seeing yeah. the the results of that. But I I wanted to t- tell you that I you know was looking on your Instagram. I really enjoyed the stop motion on the Call of the Wild, and it actually. Mm-hmm. I, I got onto our public library and checked it out for my daughter. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it just, I, I was like, oh, I'd forgotten about that book. It's so good. But I was thinking, I was, I also looked at some people you had tagged in your photos, just sorry, creeping a little bit, but um, I couldn't help but notice some similarities with like your mom's feed and your dad's feed. And, and like, I can see like how you're been influenced by them. Like, you know, your dad has all these yeah. nice pictures of na- nature and your mom, you know, out in rural areas. And it's just really cool. So, you know, yes, you go really far back, you know, it starts like at home, right. With your family and those influences. And I think, you know, what I really loved about that one question you answered about your life on the road is that it inspired you to want to live closer to home. Yeah. You know, it's, and I, I, I can relate to that. And I think a lot of people can. So it's so important to get out of your comfort zone and see the world and adventure. But like you realized at that point, you know, you like to be where you are from. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily where I'm from, but just in terms of being around my family, yeah. because I think that, you know, my mom is like one of my biggest inspirations every day. My mom builds houses and she's just out there, you know, she wakes up as often before I do. And, you know, it's just out there making shit. She's 60 years old. And, you know, my dad also a huge inspiration to me. So I just think that in family is this thing in, in the age of technology, finding unconditional love and unconditional support. It's very rare because people will love you if they agree with everything you say. But if you say something they don't agree with, you know, nope, sorry, later, you know. And with family, it's it's about so much more than that. And uh, I think that, you know, it, it is about having those experiences offline that are just, you know, you're doing them for the sake of doing them. And it's just it's just like a much more hu- human, for lack of a better word, you know, and I think that. To me, being around family and close friends, yeah, Jim wants to play Kong. That means everything, you know, whether it's my girlfriend or my brother. Actually, my brother lives in Berlin now, but just like my mom, my dad, my really close friends, like it's it's really important to just to me to be around those. I like having that more than I like being close to like a really nice restaurant, you know. I'm cool to end literally right there because you just basically answered it. It's sort of what would be your your advice to someone who's at that state in their life where they don't know what's next? They don't know how to get there. Maybe there's a lot of pressure on them. They're they're young. They just graduated from college. It's it's a changed world. There's a virus floating around. There's still expectations to be successful. It's it's a difficult time when when you find yeah. yourself in that stage. And and a lot of people that stage continues and continues and continues. And w- what's your what's your advice? I think, I mean, everyone's totally different. And what makes people different, what makes me happy is very different than what makes a lot of other people happy. But I will say that the happiest times in my life is when I have, you know, really cut back on expenses, got like foregone luxuries, and just really focused on achieving a goal that I wanted and that I believed in. 
and kind of like riding through the rapids until you get to the other side, you know, and just kind of doing it for the sake of doing it. You know, like when I lived in my van, I just had a really low overhead and really focused on that. And then when I was starting and not by any stretch of the imagination saying that I've made it as a filmmaker, but I am making a living as a filmmaker now. And I just was like three, four years ago, I was like, Hey, I'm going to do this. And I'm, I'm like, I'm in this for the, I got this is going to take a couple of years and I'm just going to like do everything I can to get there in a way I'm going to, it's going to take a while. I got to like stock up and I'm not going to like have a fancy car and I'm not going to do that. Like, what can I do to get there? And when that moment and like, there's really tough times, like I said, I've, you know, $50 in my bank account and stuff like that. And, you know, breakups and the whole nine. And, but then like when you ultimately get there and you've been able to like, you realize like, Hey, that crazy ass idea that I had that I thought would work ended up working and riding that path brings happiness to me. Not actually, not actually achieving the success or having like the physical material benefits, but just like the process of believing in yourself, following that through and then realizing it's going to work. That to me is the happiest thing. And I think that people need to be understanding of the idea that what that is, is different for a bunch of people. And don't be afraid of doing something that other people are not. Well, Foster, I'm, I'm really glad you got another dog, man. Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah, me too. I went back and in, in show prep, I sort of dug around some old notes that we traded and I came across that one. I got goosebumps when I first read it. I got goosebumps when I read it here and it just, it was really cool to see. I didn't know you had another dog. So yeah, I, it's just awesome, man. And it's, and it's great catching yeah. up. Thanks for spending the time. We really Likewise, appreciate it. Definitely. I thought your book was great. Like it, that's when I set it out in that note, I was like, fuck, it made me like want to go do something like that, you know? And I think it is people can get really lost in the weeds of only doing things because they think it's going to have, it's okay to start something and not know where it's going as long as you believe in it, you know? And that's when I look at your book, that's kind of what I see. You know, you had this idea about seeing America and like having a better understanding of what that is. And then, you know, maybe starting this and starting go ruck, but not like having a good idea of what it was. But when you start, when you left on your trip and where you, when I saw you in September of 2011, you were in a different place and look where you are now, you know? Yeah. And it wasn't easy, you know, and it's hard and you have to believe in yourself and keep going. So keep it up, man. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Sorry about my dog. Juma, can you apologize? No, it's so cool. That's awesome, man. All right. All right. See thanks, Foster. Appreciate the time. All right. See ya. Bye. I you had never met Foster. We were on a little break when I when I hung out with Foster <laughs> for true. the a few times a, a a long time ago now. Yeah. What, what do you think about Foster? Well, he's super cool, and obviously, I got to see a little bit what he of who he was because there's um, you know articles interviewing him, and one of my favorite parts was a link out to the pork bun club. I was like, what, what is this? And it was actually just, I think a group of his friends, maybe that's what they called themselves. And there's a little clip in, in the continuous lean interview, um, that shows him winning a drinking contest in, in some restaurant. And it's pretty impressive how he chugged that beer. I mean, respect his, his buddy had a, had 
like a several second lead on him while Foster was unbuttoning his shirt or something. And I was watching and I was like, there's no way he's going to smoke him. And then, because that was the title of the the video, yeah. like Foster smokes, you know, um, his friend. And it, it was really funny. So yeah, it's just, I've heard about him through you and, you know, I've always wondered who, who took that picture of you in Java on that for, you know, 14er and now it's like makes sense because it's such a great picture that oh the patagonia photographer that you know (laughs) took pictures for years and years travel guy yeah Yeah. who chose the nat geographic you know best travel photo of the year it's like damn foster give it to yourself to pick that one yeah right um but look i i think you know foster is it's a little bit different than some of the people that we've had on in the past, which we welcome here on Glorious Professionals. And I think that the overarching lesson, and we went a little bit long, which is cool. The the overarching lesson that that Foster provides, Foster's an old soul. Yeah. I, I knew that from the second I met him, uh, you know, not getting stressed out or frustrated at either the Go Ruck Challenge or the Ascent. The Ascent, the first Ascent was multiple 14ers in Colorado with, we, we put everyone on caloric restrictive diets as well. I mean, it was, it was like meant to be very austere and he was just very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things he came to me and he goes, Hey man, I'm really having a good time here. This is awesome. Right. This is right up my alley. He goes, but you're, you're almost on the verge of a mutiny with some of these people that they, they weren't really expecting well, he was all, the one that told you all that, of huh? this. Yeah. And so it just, he was just very, and then he's, you know, what, almost 10 years younger. Mm-hmm. And it just, he's just very calm and, and chill about it. And, and so look, Foster, he, part of it is he, he got a little bit of Forrest Gump in him, right. Where he just, he's in the right place at the right time. But the other part is that, you know, if you keep following the, the direction where you're true to yourself. You got to keep checking in on yourself and just do more stuff. Start the blog, you know, quit your job, go, go live out of a van for a year, go, you know, build a tree house, go, you know, start a media studio, just keep doing stuff. Stay, stay moving forward. I mean, you know, you know how this is. It's, he's telling you the, not inauthentically, he's just telling the high points, right? Because that's what we want to hear about. But, you know, if you really get sit down you can you know he he didn't get into it as much as he probably could have but there's there was rough rough times when it probably would have been easy to say oh give up this isn't gonna you know how many times it it really is just the hard work and luck just this coincide and and I think the point was that you said you know he didn't just wasn't just a flash in the pan in New York right he actually spent some time developed some relationships and those ended up you know, being fruitful down the line, you know, they opened some doors and it, it was a, it was a combination of his talent and perseverance and, and hard work with these other, you know, connections. And I, like you said, he wasn't just someone who just wanted to do his work. He would hang out with people and get to know them and, you know, understand their life, document it. I mean, the big point about this, I actually think there's a lot of cool people doing cool things in this world. You know, when he talked about people in, you know, sort of unconventional jobs. But it's a rare person that can document it and document it well. And I, you know, something I always learned in my past profession is that if it was not written down, it didn't happen, right? So that's great. I'm sure, you know, some of these folks have cool stories and experiences and they're legit. They're really legit, you know, whitewater rafters or mountain climbers. But if they're not interested in documenting it, 
which not everyone is, or don't have like a penchant for it or a talent or an eye, then it's just not going to be the same. But you combine those factors and it that's where that's where you get someone like him. Yeah, I think he's got just the minimum viable desire to actually communicate. You know he's doing something, mm -hmm. but you know, he's gonna document what he needs to. You know, just the minimum, he's not, he's not, it's not going backwards. It's not, I'm going to do this to document. So if you're out there listening, don't plan your life around what you can document. Do what you love. And if you want to communicate that more, then that's cool. Do that. And, and that's the sweet spot that I think he's really found. Yes. That's what everyone is looking for. Right. But it pro the problem is it. I'm I, not I sure think, everyone is looking for that well, or they don't know what they're looking for. I think they for. want that inherently, but they force it. You know, you hear about these stories about, you know, people renting jets so they can stage photos in there. Like that, that is not, and these are just regular people. They're not doing it for a company. Like all of a sudden that you're going to build a, a house made out of sand, right? And, and, you know, you can tell, I think, when people are building foundations made out of something more. So this is why, you know, he, he goes away for a couple of years and builds a media studio in, his, in, in the same property, right? I mean, you can't just keep chasing the next post. You have to be a little bit ahead of it. And, and I agree with him. The, the influencer model, it's going to die. It is very, very inflated right now. There's not a true estimate that I can deduce about where the value is coming from. And the attribution model is nobody wants to be accountable. When someone is an influencer, you, you go through all of this stuff and you say, well, how can you be accountable for, for any results? And it's never that. It's always there's the media itself is this valuable. This is what it costs. And, you know, there's a lot of people making pretty good money right now doing that. And they're just, there's a lot more people coming in chasing the same stuff that they, they heard their friends are making. And it's just, it's not. It's sustainable. It's, it's not, not sustainable. sustainable from a business perspective. And ultimately the businesses have to write the checks. Yeah. You know, like it's going to catch up. And, and, and so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in, in Foster's case. I think you've got someone who's, he's going to be ahead of the power curve, whatever that power curve might be. He might not hit a home run with everything, but he's going to keep after it. And that's, that's really cool. I'm glad, you know, I met him a while back and I'm glad we've stayed in touch. Yeah. I mean, I think, and he said this in some other interviews, it's important to not just do a post, you know, for the likes or, you know, something like that, whether it's yours or some, for someone else, but this idea of art, long form art, you know, it's a different experience. It's, it's like right now we're dealing in this, it, I think it's disposable, right? It's like, you see it goes through, it's gone. I do actually think that there's kind of high form of memeing. I, I actually think that exists. I've, I've laughed at it and I've kept, I have a little folder on my phone for the memes I think are really funny that I want to keep, you know, but in general, it's not, it's not sort of- uh, You're bearing your soul here now, <laughs> no, huh? I'm just saying like, <laughs> I, I just don't, I'm not going to just denigrate a whole new art form just because I'm older and may not understand it, right? You know, as fully as the people that are, you know, creating it. That being said, I do think in general, it's copying, it's taking someone else's work and putting a funny, you know, caption to it or something. And it's not, it, it, it's not the same as something long form, you know, like, you know, it's not the, we're not talking Sistine Chapel kind of level stuff here, you know, or, you know, a great, a great film, you know, and, and, and so it's, it's really cool to see him go back to 
where he was from to be around his family and, and friends and, and really hunker down and get more creative there and start to say, I mean, I really thought it was cool. The, I don't want to just keep one upping myself. And I, I, he said a blimp and I actually was thinking like outer space, <laughs> <laughs> but, but a blimp probably would have been the next logical step, but yeah, I think different sort of guests than we usually have, but there's a lot of the sim- same sort of, um, you know, values at play. All right. Well, we appreciate your listening to all of you who are out there. If you've enjoyed this, please tell your friends about it. This is a, a labor of love of ours. And yet it lets us connect with, with people that we've not been in touch with for, for too long. It lets us find some, some new people who are out there with really interesting stuff to share their stories about. We hope you get some inspiration from Glorious Professionals podcast and we hope you tell your friends about it. Oh yeah. Emily said, make sure to review it in the app store. We really, really appreciate it.